We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today, and uh, it'll be very fitting because we are talking about Christ, we're talking about the gospel, and the need to remember the gospel and what it is, so uh, what a great way for us to end by doing what Jesus said to do in remembrance of Him. So keep that in mind. Pray with me one more time if you would. We come before you, God, now as um, men and women who are very needy. We need you and we need your encouragement and we need you to teach us through your word and through the power of the Spirit. So please do that. Our request is like the request of the psalmist that you would open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from your word. May it be so together as we study your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't need to tell you that our world is filled with needs. There are tons of problems, so there are tons of needs. There are all different kinds, um, on all different kinds of levels. And yet we as Christians would say the greatest need in all the world is the need for people to understand the gospel and to believe in Christ. Uh, That's what we would say as Christians. That's what we uh, desire for our friends and people we know, people we don't know so well. We want them to understand the gospel. That's their greatest need. Uh, For me as a Christian, that's true. For you as a Christian, for me as a Christian pastor, that's true. For us as a church, Omaha Bible Church, we, we know that people's greatest need is to understand the gospel and to trust in Christ. And yet we also know that while sometimes we make headway and we're making ourselves clearer and we're proclaiming Christ and we we seem to make a little progress, it seems like as soon as we make some progress, it seems like we take two steps back and we all seem to have this spiritual amnesia. And uh, human history has proven that to be the case. The church will really be clear and, and bold and many people are understanding the gospel and many people are believing and then before you know it, it's like we're, we're confused and we've forgotten what the gospel even is and we forget our identity and it's a real struggle. What do we do? What do we do? Well, if we learn from Jesus, which is always a good idea, right? If we learn from Jesus, we're going to learn something that we can do to help people understand the gospel. And yet it's something that we probably wouldn't put at the top of the list. It's probably a surprise to you. It's not a surprise to me because I've already studied the passage and I know where we're going and all that sort of thing. But it would be a surprise even to many Christians to learn from Jesus by what He did time and time again in order to help people understand who He is and what He came to do. One thing we can do that Jesus does time and time again so that people can understand the gospel is he emphasizes the law. Time and time again, Jesus takes the law of God and he he brings it to bear on people's lives so that they can see that they are what? So they can see that they're sinners. And we make so many assumptions as Christians, we forget that apart from a divine standard, apart from the law, people won't know that they're guilty of law-breaking. They won't know that they're sinners. And obviously the gospel will never make sense. And so what we're going to see this morning in Luke 16, as we study this text of Scripture together, is Jesus, time and time again, bringing the divine law to bear so that the Pharisees in particular, religious people, will see that they're sinners. 
So as you turn there, uh, I might even remind you, in case you uh, need a reminder, that 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Sin is lawlessness. So it makes all the sense in the world that Jesus wants people to see that they're sinners. He's got to bring the law to bear because sin is lawlessness. Sin isn't just some kind of force or, or idea or concept. Actually, there would be no sin if there weren't for a divine law. And so what Jesus does is he takes the good law, because it comes from God, and he brings it to bear to show that they're sinners. And we can learn from him doing this. I hope we learn from him doing this. And so we're going to witness this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees as we look at Luke 16, verses 14 to 18. And then next week we'll look at the rich man and Lazarus dealing with similar kinds of issues. If you'd like an outline this morning, the outline I'm going to follow would be five features of God's law that everyone needs to know. Five features of God's law that everyone needs to know. Specifically, everyone needs to know if they're going to understand the gospel. And let's make sure that we're not just talking about those guys and gals out there. These are things we need to know. If we're burdened for people who aren't believers, and so we're going to try to help them understand the gospel, we need to help them to understand sin, which means we need to help them understand the law. How can we do that if we don't understand it ourselves? And many times, Christians don't. So let's get, a, let's get better equipped today um, so that we can, we can do a better job even clearly articulating the gospel and people's need for the gospel. Ready to go? All right. The first feature of God's law that no one can afford to overlook. Number one, the law offends the guilty. The law offends the guilty. And we see this if we look at verse 14 with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, people who affirm the law. They say they uh, believe it and they say they do it. It says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed Jesus. And I realize we're just jumping in here to a context but we only have so much time. They hear all of these things. They don't like what they hear. And so they turn on Jesus and they ridicule him. And we'll get to the ridicule part in just a moment. But hear all these things. Well, just before this text, they hear Jesus applying the law to them, bringing it to bear on them. And they don't like it. So they respond with ridicule. In fact, you can just go ahead and look back at verse 13 where Jesus is applying the law, an expression of the law he's applying to them. Back in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and money. That is an expression of the law. Most certainly it's an expression of the law. Because the law at its most basic, foundational, fundamental level says, love God and only God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm going to read from it. You can turn there if you'd like to. But just to, just to do a little um, unpacking and reminding, the law at its most basic, basic level says, Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of your faculties, all of your being in a pure sense. 
And so when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you cannot serve God and money, in effect, he's, he's pulling out the law. They know what he's getting at. You can't have two gods. That's idolatry. You can only have one God. And he knows full well that they have mixed devotion. They love money, as our text even says. It's a God to them. And so he's using the law of God to show them their guiltiness. So we need to know that the law offends the guilty. Now, I do want to reference Deuteronomy chapter 6, just in case you're not aware that this is so clear in the Old Testament. I referenced it last time, where it says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's really important. If there's only one God, it's logical and it makes sense to say what it says in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And let me belabor that. One God means all of His creation is obligated to treat the one God like He's the one God. That's all. I mean, this is just simple logic. If monotheism is true, then your devotion is to the one God. And when you have your devotion split, whether it's between God and money or God and this or God and that, you're a practical polytheist. And the Bible's word for that is, given the fact that there's only one God, it's idolatry. It's terrible. It's anti-reality. You're giving devotion. You're expressing allegiance to, to something other than the very one who deserves your supreme allegiance and devotion. We know that this is the basic, basic, basic level of what the law is. We know it from this passage. We know it from the Old Testament. We know it from Jesus. Time and time again, where Jesus is asked to summarize the law, he just quotes Deuteronomy 6. Or even when he asks other people to summarize it. And they, in essence, quote Deuteronomy 6. He says, you're right. You're right. Maybe we'll just look at one of those. Maybe Luke, Luke chapter 10. Just so you can see this and be clear on this. I think some of you are probably saying, yeah, I got this. But for every one of you who are like that, there's probably 20 people in the room who don't really have a grasp on this, this thing called the law of God. And so I, just be patient, okay? Um, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer. Not in the sense we would normally think, but an expert when it comes to, to Old Testament law. A lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Huh, what a question. Verse 26, he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Hmm. You want to know what God requires? He requires that everyone treat him exactly like he's God. The law is reasonable. The law is good. The law makes sense. And if you do that, 
God will accept you. It's pretty straightforward. Very straightforward. Now we know that there's a problem, don't we? <laughs> We're going to get to that part. But we, we know the problem is no one does this. And no one has done this because we're lawbreakers. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even that text, I hope, makes more sense when you see all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? Us treating God like He's God as it is expressed in His good divine law. So with that in mind, I hope our text, Luke 16, verses 14 and following, makes more sense. Jesus takes an expression of the law. You can't serve God in money. Let me take the law and let me press it, press it upon you so that you can see that you guys who talk about the law, who talk about God, who say you love God as He requires are in fact not telling the truth. Right? And what does it do then? It is offensive to them. The law, when rightly seen and rightly applied, is offensive. To the point where we saw that they, in verse 14, ridiculed him. That's what happens. It exposes law-breaking. It exposes sin. It demonstrates that while we can say we are law-keepers, which is what we're saying when we say we love God as He requires. We're saying, I keep the law. And Jesus is showing them that they don't. What's interesting is back in chapter 15, there, early on, there were those who were considered lawbreakers. They're labeled sinners. Sin is lawlessness. They're considered to be the lawless. And Jesus goes to them. And you, what do they do? By God's grace, they repent and they believe in Jesus. See, because they're in touch with reality. They're in agreement with God, and they're in agreement with, with His Son. You know what? I, I'm, I am a sinner. Just like the whole culture says I'm a sinner, I actually am a sinner. I'm a lawbreaker. I know I am. So they see Jesus for who He is, and it describes them as repenting. It describes them as trusting in Him. See, that's the repentance response. And sometimes that happens. But sometimes it's the ridicule response. Because they're in denial. And the Pharisees are in denial. It doesn't say what they ridiculed him for exactly. Or how they ridiculed him. I mean, they ridiculed him. They didn't like what he was saying. It doesn't spell it out for us. Now, I, want, I wonder if they accuse him of legalism. <laughs> well, surely that's not, that's not the intent of the law. I don't know. Which is so ironic because earlier they're upset with him because he's spending time with bad people. You know, earlier they're accusing him of, of um, libertinism. What are you compromising by spending time with sinners? And now they're ridiculing him apparently for something else. Well, God, you know, God, God isn't going to hold that kind of requirement. Whatever it is, they turn it around and they ridicule him. And, and let's all remember that that's oftentimes what happens. We want to proclaim God's standard. We want to make sure people understand that they don't meet the standard so that they can then see that they need Christ. And sometimes people are going to repent, like in chapter 15, and sometimes they're going to turn it around and ridicule like we're seeing in chapter 16. They did both to Jesus. You could expect them to do the same to you. 
Sadly, this happens not just with unbelievers, right? You show people sin. Sometimes there's repentance, and sometimes when you show people sin, they just turn it around and do a personal attack against you. It's totally upside down. doesn't make sense. But it's what's happening here. But how about this? Apart from seeing that we're guilty, we'll never see our need for the gospel. And so the great need is for people to see their need for Christ and, and to trust in Christ and His perfect reconciling work. And, and in order for that to be making sense... We've got to help people by God's grace, using the divine standard, no doubt, to see that they're guilty. And that's a risky endeavor, isn't it? If we tell everybody they're good and that's why Jesus came for them, it's not the gospel and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't do any good in the long run anyway. This is a tough business. And yet, what are we doing? We're trying to speak the truth Kindly, graciously, lovingly, but to speak the truth because it's reality. There is one God, therefore we have to treat him like he's God. And, and oh, by the way, let me help you see that, that you haven't and neither have I. Let's move on to the second feature of God's law that no one can afford to overlook, and that is this. Number two, the law concerns the outside and inside. And Jesus is going to focus on the inside. The law concerns the outside and the inside. Verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. You see it there? You justify yourselves before men outside, external. And the Bible has plenty to say about external things. But here he's putting the emphasis on the harder, but God knows the heart, the inside. The law is concerned, God is concerned with both the outside and the inside, which makes sense back to the statement of Deuteronomy 6, as well as Jesus quoting it in Matthew 22 and elsewhere in John, or excuse me, Luke chapter 10, to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's talking about all of your faculties exhaustively. So it's, yes, it would include the outside, but it would be the inside too. You justify yourselves before men. As a reminder, the word justify or the word righteous, sometimes translated that way, in the New Testament world, is a word related to the law. It's a law word. You justify yourself. You say you're righteous. You portray yourself to be righteous. Well, righteous means, means law-keeping. You meet the standard. So the way you present yourself before human beings is you present yourself as one who is righteous, one who is just, one who meets God's obligation, you meet God's requirement, to the point where lots of people would have even thought they were. Remember, they're in a teach, teaching position, which just makes us all the worse. You justify yourself. You, in effect, are saying, I'm a law keeper. I'm a good person. I love God as He requires. And you might be able to fool those people out there. 
by your high and holy demeanor. Oh, so holy. But Jesus says, but God looks at the heart. The law concerns not only the external, but it concerns the internal. Isn't it interesting where Jesus says, God knows your hearts? You don't have to be a Bible scholar in verse 15. All you have to do is read it and go, is that a good thing? I mean, you just, you just like basic level reader and read the Bible in context and go, is it a good thing that God knows our hearts or a bad thing? It's a bad thing that God knows our hearts. I mean, it's a good thing because God is good. You understand. But if, if I don't have a good heart that loves God the way it should, I'm not so excited that God knows my heart. It's horrible that God knows my heart. And we have it exactly opposite. You know, we forget basic teachings by Jesus or basic teachings by Jeremiah. Like in 17 verse 9, the heart is, is wicked. It's corrupt. Actually, the heart is the greatest problem. We have it the opposite so many times because we don't think with the biblical worldview. We do bad external behavior, right? And then we say, but it's all going to be covered up with the fact that God knows my heart. You know, how about this? The easier part is the external part. The Pharisees are proof positive of it. They can do the external right things and have everybody be duped into thinking they're actually good and they actually love God the way He requires. That's the easy part. The hard part is actually the heart part, which means it's doing it with the right motives, the right dedication, without division. The problem is God knows our hearts. We can, we can all be, you know, replicas of Mother Teresa. Oh, she's so holy. She does all those right things. That's the easy part. And sometimes it can actually be the worst part. Because we're fooling ourselves by our external actions and we're fooling other people who will then affirm us for our external actions. And we don't realize that we're like the Pharisees who don't realize they're lawbreakers. Because God knows the heart. Ah, pretty heavy sermon, huh? But one thing the sermon isn't, even though it's about law, it's not legalistic. It's in touch with reality. And if we don't understand the law first, we'll never understand the gospel, which is anything but legalistic. So that's why we get excited about learning this kind of stuff. Let's keep going in verse 15. For, for what is exalted among men, he's still keeping this contrast between humans and, and God, and it's different. What is exalted among men what would that be referring to earlier in our verse? Exalted among men. Oh, the self-justifiers, right? The self-justifiers are exalted among other human beings. Do you see it there? That's the comparison. Is an abomination in the sight of God. It's a, it, literally, it's a stench in his nostrils. It smells putrid like rotting flesh or, or something like that. Ugh. 
the self-justifier. I'm a law keeper. I love God. You know? I'm a good person. Oh, let's exalt Him. Oh, let's, let, let's just have Him give us more principles so that we can be like Him because He's so good and He's arrived. And God says, that makes me sick. It's an abomination. My question I wrote down is why? And I think the answer is because it's not true. All this righteous talk has God uh, on the bench, if you will. The Bible teaches that God is a father and passages talk about that. We're not, that that's not in this context, though. Right now, God is pictured as a judge because we're talking about justifying. And God is a true, honorable, with genuine integrity, just judge. And here Pat Abendroth is propped up because he's a self-justifier and he, in fact, is not a law keeper, but he says he is a law keeper and other people might even exalt him because they're fooled by his self-exaltation too. And God says, that's an abomination to me. That's terrible. Why would he do that? Because he's a just judge. He's in touch with reality. It's not true, so it's offensive to him. It's utterly offensive to him. If we're lawbreakers, we're sinners, and we say that we're not sinners, what does the just judge do? He says, that is wrong. That is offensive. How dare you insult my intelligence? Or something like that. You get the idea. It's an abomination because it's a lie. It's an injustice. Just for sake of marginal reference, if you would like, and in just a minute, we're going to come up for a gospel breather, I promise. Okay? We're going to take a gospel timeout um, (laughs) because we know how the whole thing fits together. But you can jot down in your margin, if you'd like, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And answering the question, why is God so offended? Well, he's so offended because of what it says in Romans 3, 10. None is righteous. No, not one. Which is another way of saying, no one is a law keeper. Which is another way of saying, no one is just in the ultimate sense. So when we self-justify, it's a denial of reality. And that's offensive. Romans 3 quotes the Old Testament. So this is an Old Testament reality, a New Testament reality. Devastating. Reminds me of funerals a little bit. Oh, Pat, he was a good person. Really? We know he's in heaven now because he was such a good person. Self-justification or friend justification, I don't know. Sure, there's relative good. I'm so thankful he was kind to me. We could say some of that kind of stuff. We could say it's true. All good people go to heaven. All good dogs do. Um, (laughs) But the problem is that would mean no one goes to heaven. 
Well, and I've even heard funeral speeches, you know, where they talked about some of the things that the person did that weren't right. And then something comes out like, and so it's good that God knew his heart. <laughs> My friends, welcome to your mission field, okay? You, you don't need to cross any oceans. You're, you're surrounded by people who might even go to church sometimes. Maybe they go to this church with a pagan worldview. A rank pagan worldview. And if they have that and they hear you talking about the good news about Jesus, I guarantee you they'll misunderstand it. So somehow we've got to be able to communicate this patiently, kindly, graciously, yes. Somehow we have to have people understand that they're lawbreakers so that they can understand the good news. So this isn't a made-up issue. This isn't like, this isn't a pressing issue. Why aren't we talking about important things? Most people you know think they're good. This is a pressing issue. It's a huge issue. Now, let's have a little gospel moment, okay? That sounds too, too like, I don't know, Mr. Rogers-ish. But anyway, <laughs> I'll put on my sweater and we'll... <laughs> let's, let's have some good news here. Turn with me if you would, and it's, it's related to Romans 4. Okay, Romans 4 is going to help us make some connections here that are really quite astounding. As you're turning there, you might even, I was thinking about uh, this this week, you might, even be getting, you might be getting a little bit tired of this series in Luke because um, it seems like it's the same stuff. <laughs> You know, wherever, wherever Jesus turns, it's either the Pharisees or the Sadducees or, or his own disciples. Or, and it seems like it's a, kind of a bit of a broken record. And to the degree that it's my fault for lack of creativity, I'm sorry. But to the degree that it just keeps coming up, um, should at least help us to see that this is a problem that doesn't go away. Um, we do have spiritual amnesia. Um, and it doesn't, doesn't just exist when Jesus is alive. It exists throughout history and it exists now in your world. Okay, Romans 4, 5 is probably the verse I go to more than any other just because it's so amazing. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes or trusts or relies upon, depends upon, that's the idea of belief, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, and in this context it's faith in Christ, his faith is counted as righteousness. And some of you are going, yeah! And some of you are going, what? And I can make it super simple for you, and, and I think you'll join the rest of us in going, yeah! Believes in him who justifies. Oh, declares a law keeper. Declares righteous. What's the essence of the law? Declares that they love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love their neighbor as themselves. Let's just put that there to cover all the bases. This, you, you trust in a God who declares that you love God perfectly as he requires. But he declares this of the ungodly. 
Now, really? How could this possibly be? Well, let's keep going. His faith, his faith in this promised one, context would be Christ, is counted as righteousness or as law-keeping. What what is going on there? What's going on there is, if you trust in Christ, you believe in Him, you have faith in Christ, you the ungodly lawbreaker, Romans chapter 3, he's already covered those bases, you the lawbreaker are now declared a lawkeeper, even though you're not, because you're trusting in the one who is none other than the one who is a lawkeeper. It's awesome. It's extraordinarily awesome. It's mind-boggling, mind-blowing, mind-staggeringly awesome. <laughs> it doesn't get any better. Okay? I, I, I've never loved God the way the law requires, if I'm going to agree with God on this, ever, 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 in the way that the law requires. Christ only and always ever did because he came as a substitute for everyone who would ever believe. And so if I trust in him, God sees me as if I've loved him with my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. Hallelujah. Yes. And this has everything to do with the law. That's why we have justify, righteous, forensic terminology, credited. It is awesome awesome. But to really get this stuff, you have to understand something about the law. God is a judge. God is righteous. God is just. So isn't it interesting? Self-justifiers are an abomination to God because they're not just. They're not righteous. They're not law keepers. And yet, God declares unrighteous people righteous, and that's not an abomination to him. Double standard? No. Loving God who has a son who he sent to pay the price for us. Obligation is actually met. This is the coolest stuff I know. (laughs) If you're looking for something else, I, I... Maybe the zoo's open today. I mean, I, I, have, I have no idea. I mean, if, if, if it's not, you know, making you, if it's not moving you, I don't know what's going to. Because this is the basis of our assurance. This is the basis for, quite frankly, everything. It's the basis of our worship. It's just amazing. You can't make this stuff up. Okay, let's go. Let's, let's cover the next one. Third feature of God's law that no one can afford to overlook. Number three, the law prepares the way for the gospel. The law prepares the way for the gospel. Now that's true in a theological sense, and we've been talking about it that way. You tell people about the law, you tell them about their law breaking, and that gets them ready for the gospel. It's true in that sense. Jesus doesn't emphasize that here. He, he emphasizes it more in a historic sense. The law that came in the old covenant world prepares the way for the gospel, okay? 
He's dealing with Pharisees who want to stay in that old world, thinking they're law-keeping, even though they're not, and they want to stay there, and they're, they're ignoring the fact that God is a God who made promises in that Old Testament to do something coming in the future that would bring fulfillment. Okay? So the law in that Old Testament world prepares the way for the gospel, and the Pharisees don't see it. They're in denial of reality, the reality of progressive, redemptive history, revelation. And Jesus takes them to task about that. So let's go ahead and see Jesus schooling the supposed Bible experts about redemptive history. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Notice there's progression, there's unfolding of a plan. This is how God has been working. Since then, the good news, there's our word gospel often translated. Since then, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, which has to do with the king, which is Messiah, which is Jesus, the Christ, is preached. Jesus has been emphasizing that time and time again throughout Luke's gospel account. And it says, everyone forces his way into it complicated verse to translate. That's why in your marginal note, it might also say, or another way you could translate it, everyone is forcefully urged into it. And I'm going to go with that way of translating it. It seems to be in fitting with the context uh, better. Look, stop trying to live in the world denying that God is a God of revelation. Oh, you like the old revelation, but even the old revelation talked about something that would come. It was looking forward. And so that law actually looked forward. I mean, there's a reason why it's called an old covenant, and it, talks, it even talks about a new covenant coming. And so you've got to see that it anticipates the gospel. You can't live in that world or you're living in denial. It's supposed to come this way. I'm the Messiah. You're big talkers about obeying God's law. I've shown you you don't obey God's law. And by the way, you don't even know what God's law says because if you did, you'd know that God is revealing himself in a way that's going to lead to a climax with the coming of Messiah. Hello, I'm him. Seems to be the idea. And so there's this urgency that's called. If this is true, okay, if God has a plan and he's been unfolding his plan according to promise throughout the old and then Messiah comes, Jesus, there's going to be this urgency. You're going to urge people to repent. You're going to urge people to believe. This is the time. Instead of the Pharisees saying, you know, well, don't get too excited. We'll just keep keeping God's law. Yeah, right. Right. We wouldn't want to do emotionalism here. We wouldn't want to get people too riled up. There's this urgency if Jesus is really the one. We won't take the time to go there, but John chapter 5, verses 45 to 47, would talk about that Old Testament, even Moses talking about Jesus coming. And now let's do 4 and 5, and then we'll wrap things up. A fourth feature of God's law that no one can afford to overlook is the law cannot be made void. The law cannot be made void. They might want to accuse Jesus of being anti-law. He's telling us to move on. He's telling us Messiah has come and you need to stop living in denial of that. Maybe they're accusing him of being anti-law. So verse 17 says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot, one little marking on a Hebrew letter, one dot of the law to become void. 
just to clarify, the law of God will not pass away. Even in its little tiniest little marking, the law of God will not pass away. I'm not saying the law is not relevant. By the way, for Jesus to say it's irrelevant would be a denial of monotheism. Right? Because at its very essence, it's an affirmation of the one true God. So make no mistake about it. I'm not saying the law is gone. I'm not saying the law is gone. You Pharisees might accuse me of saying the law is gone. But I'm not saying the law is gone. We won't take the time to go there, but we would know from, let's say, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law. That'd be a denial of reality. It'd be like getting rid of God. (laughs) But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. So so don't accuse me of being anti-law. Not even a dot is going to go away. Not even a mark. Not saying that. And we know it's because he came to fulfill it. He's the one who loved his father with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. So we can be justified. Jesus fulfills the law and the law requires love. And finally, fifth feature of God's law that no one can afford to overlook. The law continues to expose sin. The law continues to expose sin. It seems to be that we're back where we started. I think he's just back to doing what he did at the beginning. I think that's why he says what he says in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And if you're like me, you go, where did that come from? And if we were just doing a a topical Bible study, you would probably use the verse however you wanted to use the verse. And if we were doing a topical Bible study on marriage, divorce, remarriage, it would be one of the texts we would want to turn to because it talks about that issue. But I don't think the intent in our passage is to sit everyone down and give an explanation about divorce and remarriage. If it was the intent, he would say more. Because he says more in Matthew 5. He says more in Matthew 19. The Apostle Paul says more in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So before you create your whole theology of divorce and remarriage, you might want to look at the other passages and keep this one in its context. And I'm not trying to take the teeth out of it, but there's more to be said. I don't think Jesus says more here on purpose. Because he's talking to Pharisees who don't think they're sinners. He's talking to Pharisees who think they keep the law. They're the experts in the law. They tell other people what to believe about the law and what's right and what's not right. And things are at a point right now, at least, in biblical history where it's common for a man. I wouldn't say it's universal, but it's common for a man to be able to divorce his wife if he doesn't like the meal she cooks. And I kid you not. And it's common among Pharisees to say, yeah, 
That's in keeping with the spirit of the law. I think that's why Jesus brings it up. Do you want me to show you your guilt as leaders? Do you want me to show you how far off the mark you are? Let me give you one example. (laughs) It's a glaring example. I think that's why it comes out of nowhere. And that's why he doesn't say more. Again, there's more to be said about that topic, which I've done before on other occasions and other texts. I'm not going to do it now because I think the intent here is to show them they've been compromising, compromising, compromising. And he's taking, again, God's standard of the law and saying, look, you're guilty. And I think he's doing it not to be mean, but to be gracious to the other people who are being misled and even to the Pharisees in the sense that you will never understand who I am until you understand just what sinners you are. I think that's the intent here. More exposing of sin. Because apart from knowing they're offenders, they'll never turn to the one who is the fulfiller. I think is what's going on. Before we're done, question number one. What does the law of God require? Just give it to me in one word. It requires love. And that sounds really easy until we open our Bibles. And you hear people say, well, you know, we're not really into all the details of theology and all that other kind of stuff and legalism. We just seek to love God. Or we just love God. I'm like, oh, so you're a legalist. Oh, so you're an abomination to God. You know, I was riding my bike by a church in Florida one time. I mentioned it before. And it just said, you know, something like, we love God on the outside. I'm like, oh, law church. (laughs) Now, I'm being a little facetious, but I want you to think like that. I wanted to say, we preach Christ. The law says in its most basic form, love God. And the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so when our, our gospel is actually law, it's no wonder we're confused. The law is good. Love God. Absolutely. And let me help you see that you don't. So that you can see the beauty of Jesus who did. And we'll proclaim Him. Oh, and then by the way, and it's for another time, another season, another Sunday, we do want to love God as people who have the Spirit of God in us. New creations in Christ. We want to be in touch with reality. But not to earn our way as law keepers, but because we have a perfect law keeper in Christ. And so let's keep that straight in our minds. We should love God. It's right to love God. But remember, that's a summation of the law of God. And we don't keep God's law, so we need Jesus to be our substitute. It's so crucial that we know this. So crucial that we know this. It's good news. If I say, now I want you all to leave now, and when you leave, I just want, I'm going to give you an assignment. Just make sure you love God this week. If you're a thinking person, you should be utterly discouraged. Instead, what I want to do is have us celebrate the Lord's Supper until Jesus comes again because we have spiritual amnesia. Until He comes again, do this. Oh, blood, substitution, like with a lamb in our place. Do this in remembrance of me. Yeah. 
That's a Christian message. That's a message of hope. It's in the work of Jesus. Isn't it good? The law helps us to see the gospel for what it is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very, very much for Jesus and for what he said and for how he acted and for what he did, that he was committed to exposing wrong thinking. But we're so grateful that, that, that he died for us who are wrong thinking and wrong acting. And so we're thankful this morning that, that the good news of salvation in Christ is not us doing more and trying harder. It's in the finished work of Jesus. And we're thankful and delighted to remember what he's done for us. And we do want that to motivate us. And we, we do want to be in touch with reality. And we do want to love you. And we're thankful that you've given us supernatural abilities and the power of the Holy Spirit to respond appropriately. As we eat and as we drink, may we do so as an act of worship in remembrance of our great Savior, Jesus, who is our righteousness.